coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. So later in the show today, by the way, happy Tuesday to you. My guest will be author Dante King. He authored a book called The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. I mean, that's a book in and of itself, the title. No, it's, there's a lot to cover, and he does so in that book. We'll try and cover as much ground as is possible. Honestly, I could probably give the guy an entire show and still have questions for after the fact. So in the aftermath of the Jacksonville shooting and the, I think, not-so-subtle insinuations that are racist that come throughout our constant political discourse are worth noting. Glad to have him on. Looking forward to doing that. We'll have that in the back half of the show. We also have new polling data amongst Georgia, likely Republican voters. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution doing a dive into 807 likely voters. We will discuss that a little bit later in the show. Speaking of the, to me, not-so-subtle efforts at racism, the political landscape just shocked that former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows showed up in court yesterday to try and bolster his efforts to have his part in the Trump indictments, his particular trial, move to federal court. Why? I'll let ABC News' Aaron Katursky explain it for you, as he did in last night's segment. Where a trial jury would be drawn from more than Fulton County, which voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden in 2020. It's possible moving one defendant's case could mean all 19 are tried in federal court, so aides and attorneys for Trump and some of his alleged co-conspirators will be watching closely. They're not going to come right out and say, well, we'd like fewer voters of color. But they're essentially saying they want a jury pool with fewer voters of color. Now, anyone who is a student of history in this country knows that for decades after the Civil War, many black defendants had their fates tied to juries that had no persons of color sitting in those boxes. But that would require a more substantive look at America's history of race. I think they call it critical race theory. And there's the problem. See, not only was this weekend the anniversary of the March on Washington, the 60th anniversary of that march, and the infamous Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speech, the I Have a Dream speech, it was also the anniversary, uh, the 63rd anniversary, of Axe Handle Saturday, where over 200 white rioters armed with baseball bats and axe handles chased, beat, and threatened black residents in Jacksonville, Florida. I would be willing to bet you there are many folks who live among us with American history degrees, with, that's right, degrees in history, who may not even know about Axe Handle Saturday. I myself didn't until I was watching the opening monologue of Rachel Maddow last night on MSNBC. I sat there and I watched that aplomb. Had no idea. I sit on my sofa many lazy weekend days when the weather's not good and something good on PBS is airing, something with Dr. Henley Louis Gates, like America After the Civil War. It's a lovely documentary you should watch. If you haven't yet, watch it. 
Axe Handle Saturday didn't make it. And actually, how can it? The documentary series is only so many hours long. PBS only has so much airtime. There's only so many DVDs to burn this stuff on. There were hundreds, thousands even, incidences like Axe Handle Saturday in American history. But we don't know that because we don't teach actual American history in these United States. In the meanwhile, we're seeing a double standard roll out right before our eyes, and I don't know if anybody's really putting a spotlight on it. Do you remember how much political capital the left found themselves trying to teeter and keep in hand like mom coming home from Thanksgiving with all the Tupperware containers on her lap? Remember that? Now, (laughs) defund the police used to be the albatross on the neck of Democrats, and yet Republicans are all over defunding enforcement of law. Law enforcement. They are for defunding law enforcement. Congressman Andrew Clyde, Athens Republican, wants to use an upcoming appropriations bill in Congress to slash federal spending for Fonnie Willis, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, and federal special counsel Jack Smith. They want, he wants to defund law enforcement. Well, just those three. Just those three. I wonder what those three have in common. Oh, Trump indictments. Huh. Isn't that fascinating, though? Defund the police. They were all against even thinking of defunding law enforcement until a well-connected, supposedly wealthy, well, he's not really concerned, a Republican becomes the target of law enforcement. This still goes back to what I was talking about yesterday, how Republicans are more fearful of MAGA voters taking their ball and going elsewhere or sitting out and them having short-term electoral losses than they are emboldened by their ideology, their conservative values. Donald Trump's not a conservative. But they are more fearful of the Trump movement blowing back on them politically than they are brave to stand for their conservative values. Because they are showing us they will flip positions in a millisecond. I'm against defund the police. Defund Fonnie Willis. Defund Jack Smith. Defund Alvin Bragg. They're law enforcement. Defund them. <laughs> defund the FBI. They're law enforcement. Defund them. The IRS policing those who evade taxes. They are, in essence, law enforcement. Defund the IRS. They're law enforcement. Defund them. But you said, I know what I Defund them. That's Republicans right now, 2023 Republicans. If the rule of law doesn't suit us, get rid of the law or get rid of those who enforce the law. The police, defund the police. Democracy doesn't work their way. Gerrymander, suppress votes. (laughs) Or how about Vivek Ramaswamy? If the peaceful transition of power doesn't convenience the outcome that you sought. Most of the candidates on stage Wednesday night said Mike Pence did the right thing on January 6th. Do you agree? I would have done it very differently. I think that there was a historic opportunity that he missed 
to reunite this country in that window. What I would have said is this is a moment for a true national consensus where there's two elements of what's required for a functioning democracy in America. Democracy. One is secure elections, and the second is a peaceful transfer of power. Democracy. When those things come into conflict, nice. that's an opportunity for heroism. Here's what I would have said. We need single-day voting on Election Day. We need paper ballots, and we need government-issued ID matching the voter file. And if we achieve that, then we have achieved victory, and we should not have any further complaint about election integrity. So what would, so what I would, would have you driven have done? it through the Senate. So what would you have done as, with Mike Pence? You would have so not my capacity, certified the election? So in, in my capacity as nope. president of the Senate, I would have led through that level of reform, then on that condition certified the election results, served it up to the president, yeah. President Trump then to sign that into law, and on January 7th declared the re-election campaign pursuant to a free and fair election. He just would have blown up the rules and blown up the results and just decided to make it up as he goes. That's not really unlike what the Republicans are talking about wanting to do right now. There's only one problem with that. Well, I'm going to let an interesting voice chime in. Going on MSR or checked out on Meet the Press on NBC and saying, I would have done it different from Mike Pence. I would have drafted a bill that day, submitted it to the Senate as president of the Senate that day and got it past the House that day and mm-hmm. got President Trump to sign it that mm-hmm. day and then certified the election. It may sound good to idiots who are idiots, but to people who know anything <laughs> about the rule of law, it's physically, literally impossible. Yes. And yet... People want the magical thinking. Not only do they want the magical thinking, they want the grievance of the magical thinking not happening. The number of people yelling that Brian Kemp can get rid of that prosecutor. He just won't do it. Show me the law. Mm -hmm. There isn't one. Show me the rule. There isn't one. Show me the process. There isn't one. But he should do it because he's got to do it. It doesn't matter. Never mind the deliciousness of Eric Erickson basically calling out the audience that he targets as being idiots. They are. Chef's kiss. He's actually right. I mean, if Vivek wants a national consensus, let's look at the results of the popular vote. I believe seven of the last eight election cycles, dating back to 1992. That is a national consensus. That the left, the, the United States majority, wants the left to control federal government. It's inarguable. That is a national consensus, Vivek. But he wanted to set the reset button on January 7th, if he had been vice president, by not certifying the will of not just the majority of voters, but the majority of electors, not the fake electors, the actual electors. Can I just tell you one quick antidote? When I was a child, my best friend, Jeremy Ray, and I used to spend our summer days playing baseball one-on-one. Do you know how hard it is to play baseball one-on-one? We had rules. We made up rules and we, we, we both had like our, we were different teams. We had different team names, but we were literally just him and I playing each other. I'd pitch, he'd hit. If it hit a tree, it's an out. If it hit, you know what I'm saying? If it hits the, the tree that was the base, it's an out. If I caught it, it's an out. And, and when he'd pitch, I'd hit. And let me tell you, the long and short of it was, 
Jeremy Ray was a much better baseball player than I ever could be. Had poor vision, just wasn't as athletic as he was. He went on to play at the junior college level. I think he won a junior college championship, and I know he played on the high school baseball team that won the North Georgia championship in 1992. Really good ball player. I was not so much. But man, I won enough games by jiggering with the rules of our little baseball sport. I won a lot of division titles because I, for some reason, I think it was a year older, maybe I, I had some, for some reason, a little bit more authority and I managed to tinker with the rules and lo and behold, I used to win a lot. Not because I was the better ball player, but because I used to tinker with the rules a lot. Now, who does that sound like in our political sphere right now? Hmm? All right. When we come back, let's dive into the AJC GOP likely voter poll and It's no surprise who's in charge, but there are some interesting nuggets that we can pull from that. We'll do that next segment here on The Ron Show, the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or thank you for listening wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Tuesday. So this week, we were to be celebrating the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, and instead, we found ourselves covering our faces in horror as another targeted slaughter of people of color by a white supremacist occurred in Jacksonville, Florida. Next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Well, both actually, the culmination of 60 years in celebrating the March on Washington and the Jacksonville targeted shooting. And his book, sounds like a fantastic book, The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. That is a long title. It's actually the 400-year Holocaust. You know, they do the subtitle. Anyway, Dante King joins us next segment to discuss all of those issues, and I'm sure a few more. New Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll of 807 GOP voters. This was uh, conducted August 16th through 23rd, so after Fonnie Willis indictments came out against Donald Trump, and by the way, just the most recent indictments of Donald Trump, these are 807 likely GOP voters. Uh, the question posed to them, as you may know, Donald Trump has been indicted by a federal grand jury and a Fulton County grand jury on charges related to efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Do you think the charges against Donald Trump in this case are, and the options were, very serious, somewhat serious, not too serious, not serious at all, undecided? Very and somewhat serious, 50%. of likely GOP voters think that the charges Fonnie Willis brought against Donald Trump are either very or somewhat serious. Now, you could dive down deeper into asking, okay, but do you believe they're serious because he appears to be guilty, or do you believe they're serious because the deep state? And you have to think... Anyone with half a brain would know that of that 50%, there's going to be at least a good chunk, if not a majority of that chunk, that 50%, who are going to lean into the deep state stuff, right? This poll also checked out the temperature of these likely voters when it comes to who they're looking to support. (laughs) 57% of these 807 likely GOP voters are solidly behind Donald Trump. 15% for Ron DeSantis, 
You know what's in third place? Undecided. Third place is undecided. If that 14% said, you know what? Got to coalesce around somebody other than Donald Trump. And I think that's what that 14% is saying. That 14% is saying, it's not going to be that guy. It's going to be whoever has a full head of steam coming after him with momentum heading into the Georgia primary. That's who that 14% is going to jump onto. If that 14% jumped onto all of the others combined on one name, Donald Trump still has 57% of likely Georgia GOP voters. Undecided is in third place. <laughs> Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie. Uh, who is Francis Suarez? Never heard of that. Well, he's got 1%. I, I assume it's a he, Francis with an I, not an E. Nikki Haley, 3%. Tim Scott, 3%. Vivek, 3%. Mike Pence, 4%. Undecided in third place, yeah, 14%. It reminds me of the meme that was going around when it was Clinton versus Trump, and a lot of us were you know, putting out yard signs, any functioning adult. I mean, that's undecided right there. Undecided is, please, someone rise to the top. But it's not a serious number, 14% of 807 likely GOP voters. Uh, in a hypothetical two-way matchup, with just Trump and DeSantis, Trump had an overwhelming 33-point lead. Half of Georgia Republicans saying that Trump is definitely the strongest candidate to defeat President Joe Biden next year. There's also this. Uh, One-third of Trump's supporters said that they were open. Okay, okay, here we go. One-third of Trump's supporters said that they were open to considering an alternative. Okay, there's something there. That is 38% of those polled. Okay, so if Trump's not in the mix, 38% of his voters, no, I'm sorry, 38% of overall voters are willing to go to someone else. That only helps, honestly, a, well, actually it would help anybody. It would help any one candidate who can step forward and claim the mantle. If Donald Trump is not available, that 38% that's willing to peel off to somebody else would give any one of these candidates a decided advantage. Even Francis Suarez. <laughs> if Francis Suarez got Trump's 38%, well, the, the 38% of overall voters amongst Trump voters who would go to anybody else. Francis Suarez suddenly would be at 39% and would be 24% ahead of Ron to say, that's not going to happen. I mean, it could be Vivek. I tend to think that that 38% is probably just going to intersperse amongst the rest. The only of these names on the list that have no chance at any Trump voters who would peel off, Mike Pence, Chris Christie. Okay, probably Francis Suarez too, if we're being honest. So that would mean uh, Haley, Scott, Ron DeSantis all have a chance to grab the 38% of overall GOP voters who are currently supporting Trump, who are open to considering an alternative. On the other side, about a third of those backing somebody else said that they would still consider voting for Donald Trump. Hang on, are you hearing me here? 
only a third of the 43% of likely GOP voters are willing to vote for Donald Trump. One third. That is, by my math, 14% of overall GOP voters who would go with Donald Trump. That leaves about 28%, 29% of likely GOP voters who simply would not vote for Donald Trump. We talked a little bit about this at length yesterday. Sometimes I get the sense that the Biden-Harris 2024 campaign is all about consider the alternative instead of consider the possibilities. And that math right there kind of lends some credence to the thought, but it sure isn't inspiring, is it? Consider the alternative. Mm. And one reason here in particular why Donald Trump is in no hurry to get these trials over with, oh, some 37% of those polled said that they would not vote for a political candidate who has been convicted by a jury of a felony crime. Okay, author Dante King up after the break here on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you find us. Follow The Ron Show on Facebook at The Ron Show Radio. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So while this week we're supposed to be celebrating the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington and Dr. Martin Luther King's infamous speech, the I Have a Dream speech, instead we are collectively licking our wounds and mourning the loss of loved ones in Jacksonville, Florida, as a white masked gunman walked into a Dollar General, and who among us has not mindlessly walked into a Dollar General to pick up some items, not thinking that that would be our final spot to collect breath. And yet, on an anniversary of another historic racially uh, important event in Jacksonville, Florida, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Here to join me to talk about that, uh, and a whole host of other issues, I'm sure, is author Dante King, author of the book, The 400-Year Holocaust, America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. Dante, thanks for joining us. I also want to mention you are an assistant professor at, uh, of medical uh, education at the Mayo Clinic of College of Medicine and Science and a guest faculty at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, my old job. Uh, and of course, he's also taught courses for Stanford Medical School and Johns Hopkins. Obviously, I haven't done any of that, but you have done that and a lot. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So now that I've done that setup, we're out of time. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, that's just how much, that's how big your resume is. You can't do the one page resume thing. So Dante, uh, so let's talk a a little bit about another uh, situation in Jacksonville, Florida, which, you know, follows on the heels of what happened in, in Buffalo, New York, in Charleston, South Carolina. And what I think is notable in that, well, Governor Ron DeSantis paused his campaign to come down and give a statement yesterday. Obviously, first of all, he was booed round, uh, uh, roundly by the, those that were there, but also he didn't want to say the words white supremacist or white nationalism or even racism. Right. He did not utter any of those words. I took notice of that as well. Um, he did you know, speak about the way that they were addressing anti-Semitism mm-hmm. as though that was some that was supposed to um, act as some type of consolation to what has happened um, in this particular, particularly tragic event. Mm -hmm. Um, He did not use the word racism at all. I think that um, this incident in the the larger context that it is built upon being white supremacy, um, as well as a landscape of anti-blackness that dates all the way back 
to not only the founding of this country, but the emergence of Americans, um, you know, being becoming um, a, a colonial empire for the English. Um, and we see the construction of white identity being made during that period. And we also uh, see very clearly a very profoundly vivid landscape um, and, and, and platform of laws that, that literally shaped uh, the treatment that Black people would experience in this country. I think what is significant is when we talk about slavery, we um, many times don't tease out the significance that black codes were aimed at all black people and not just enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And so it was permissible. It was made legal and, and morally permissible by Europeans for any and all white people to then be absolved of murdering black people. And I think that this um, is not only just something that is endemic, of American culture, I think it is actually part of the cultural identity of America, and it is part of the cultural psychology of America. Well, we saw that play out uh, actually just not all that long ago in another Florida town, Sanford, Florida, where Trayvon Martin was shot for the crime of being black and coming home with tea and Skittles. Right. Right. And I mean, even when you look at that particular situation where, you know, let's say a homeowner or a resident picks up the phone, calls the police, says, I think that there's something suspicious going on. And then they are, you know, directed by the dispatcher to stand down, mm -hmm. to not take any action at all whatsoever. Mm -hmm. This person goes out and pursues this young child and begins to provoke him in, in to, a, to a point where this child felt like he had to defend himself and then ends up murdering him and is absolved of mm -hmm. the murder based on laws that are meant to work against Black people and work to the advantage of any white person that decides to go out and unjustifiably murder Black people. And, and let's also note that the stand, stand Your Ground law that is so famous... It, used in, in that particular case didn't actually benefit Trayvon Martin at all. There was no opportunity for him to stand his ground. Not at all. Not at all. And I think, again, when you scale this, you know, if we're talking about evidence, <clears throat> and you scale the history of this country and you scale the series of events that are similar to the ones that we're discussing and the ones that we're talking about, we can see very clearly that the functionality of the law and of the legal system is to maintain, enforce, and support the rights of white people. It is arranged to set up, it is arranged and set up to protect the interests, the perspectives, and the livelihoods of white people while going against that of black and brown people. And I think, you know, from a very factual place, Prior to the 1960s, prior to, you know, what what are referred to as modern contemporary civil rights laws that were enacted to prohibit discrimination, we can see a very um, ubiquitous and conspicuous uh, reveal of laws and policies 
that supported whites only, that this was a country predicated upon white supremacy. And the children and the grandchildren of that era are the results <laughs> or the, 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 the persons in which, by which, or of which we are observing now in this moment who believe that this should be a white country, that this should be, that America was built upon that particular foundation. And it absolutely was. I think by a lack of enforcement of laws against white supremacists, against um, people who commit domestic terrorism against this country, is also support for those individuals. And so Ron DeSantis or any other politician, whether they are Republican or Democrat, making a political show or taking a political stance, but not necessarily being in support when it comes to black people and black and black communities across this country, when it comes to everyday injustices that we face through the educational system, whether it be through employment, economics, the whole array, that is disingenuous. And it's not, you know, these are these moments in, in the daily lives of black people in America are a complete tragedy. And it does not matter how you know much education one has or their economic standing. These experiences are real and we are treated not as even second-class citizens of this place. We are dealt with and treated as subjects mm. of America. Mm. Mm. We are with Dante King, author of the book, The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. I want you to, if you will, answer to those that never want to listen to the empirical plight of the black American citizen, but are quick to grasp on to the Tim Scotts, the, the Candace Owens, the, the, the insurgent types who infiltrate the right, uh, despite the obstacles they had to overcome as well that they may not even want to speak to, why is, why is it so easy for conservative America to hear a Tim Scott or a Candace Owen or, or name any, or Clarence Thomas and not listen to the overwhelming and empirical plight of the rest of black culture in this country? Because if you close your eyes and you were to turn on a speech by Tim Scott or some type of interview that Candace Owens might be giving, mm. she sounds just like a white racist individual that is, you know, putting forth ideologies or falsehoods that are rooted in factless um you know, information. I mean, there, there's nothing to back up what these individuals assert in terms of America not being a racist country, America not being a country that was built upon white supremacy. And that's from a very factual place. And I go, for example, to the Naturalization Act of 1790, which said that citizenship was based on whiteness. It was based upon white identity. And that being a, a citizen, a, a person that has lived in this country for a period of two years and being a free white person, that would ensure um, what, that one's access to the constitutional rights that were given at that particular juncture. Mm. Um, if you look at the series of cases between, um, and I'll just give a, a, a small window, 50 years, 
uh, roughly 1873, beginning with the slaughterhouse cases that begin to dismantle rights for Black Americans that they had gained via mm -hmm. the, the 14th Amendment and their citizenship, that ruling in and of itself said that Black Americans were not guaranteed the same economic rights as white people, that the 14th Amendment did not intend that. And then if you look at, for example, the two um, force acts of 1870 and 1871 that were supposed to prohibit acts of violent terrorism that were emerging against Black Americans during that period because they were trying to enforce their rights. You have two Supreme Court rulings, one in 1876, Crookshank v. Uh, the United States, and then one in 1883, the United States, um, um, United States v. Harris, which overturned both of those acts and facilitated white people going out state by state murdering and lynching and committing mob violence against innocent black people, innocent black people. And in most of those cases, um, in all really of those, uh, of those cases, inclusively almost, um, there were no convictions. And, and in many, there were no indictments of these individuals. And we have photography from that period where right. people turned these brutal lynchings into postcards. And so no one can speak um, unless they've done, you know, a tremendous amount of evidence-based factual research in looking at legality and looking at American institutional policy and the way that they have um, were designed and enforced to set up the, the evolution of white people in this country. And they have been, they were designed and enforced against Black Americans Black American citizens of the United States, no one, no one can justify that this country has not been built on the racial landscape with two particular markers, one being white supremacy and the other being anti-blackness. Do you think that the failure on the right to even mention white supremacy, white nationalism is just a simplistic fear of short-term political loss versus seeing the long-term political gain of us all uniting to snuff it out now? Well, I think upon, I mean, I have several thoughts about that. I think one, it, it definitely serves their political interest mm -hmm. to never um, mention the word white in any way whatsoever. That word has become sensationalized or, or almost something that, um, that, that, that is polarizing mm -hmm. um, to, to white people. Uh, we can't even, it's okay to mention the race of other individuals mm -hmm. um, in this country and, and almost never okay to mention the race of white people as though they are not a race, as though this country was not built upon a racial landscape. Uh, but two, um, I think what, you know, when we unpack what we discuss or or see or critique as white supremacy, it it makes white people uncomfortable mm -hmm. across the board. Yeah. And so, you know, with all of the injustices that I, I mentioned, um, even injustices in housing that occurred with the Corgan v. Buckley ruling in 1926, and the youth of the Ambler ruling that occurred the same year, which made whites-only housing 
a thing. It, it, it set a legal precedent where developers were able to deed and covet homes with whites-only titles. Mm-hmm. And the, the, they were also able to create um, cities and locales that consisted of whites-only neighborhoods. Uh, cities and locales were able to zone by race. Right. Um, when you begin to mention these things and take them to task, uh, we see that white people haven't necessarily worked so hard to get ahead or to create, um, to advance themselves. We see that that advancement was built upon exclusive and selective opportunities that white people were given. And I think when we begin to interrogate um, the government handouts that were given to white people, <laughs> and not necessarily on the basis of you know, just trying to help people who were, um, you know, in despair. But the fact that the government sponsored housing programs, job programs, and handed them out. I mean, there's a book by Ira Katz Nelson that is titled When Affirmative Action Was White. Mm. And it details so much of what I, I'm sharing uh, with you in this moment. But when we begin to take this to task, white people no longer have a basis to stand on in terms of their superiority, in terms of how great they are and how hard they have worked. It takes, it puts the whole, it turns the whole narrative of the American dream and people coming here and breaking and pulling themselves up by their bootstrap. Mm-hmm. It turns that on its face. And so it literally obliterates and eviscerates the delusion upon most white people live which is that if one just works hard and and it doesn't matter whether they have access to opportunity or not, they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And people like Tim Scott um, and Candace Owens, they absolutely know it. We are with author Dante King, author of the book, The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. Going to take a quick break, come back and have more with him after this on The Ron Show, the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Okay, we've got about six more minutes with author Dante King on The Ron Show, the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Thanks for listening. He's the author of the book, the 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide, and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. I want to touch on the critical race theory part because I think a lot of what would cure America's ignorance to the continued appearance of the fissures, the fractures uh, of racial division in this country, I, I, I think a healthier education of our history on race, an actual look at our history on race, would do so much good, if not for current generations, for future generations. Is that also why there's so much pushback from the right to even welcome that in just even law schools? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, for example, when we talk about race or, or critical and, and a critical analysis of race, and we say, for example, All of our Ivy League institutions, those institutions that we consider, for example, as Ivy League institutions, most of which uh, emerged during the colonial period, starting Mm -hmm. with Harvard, then I believe William and Mary College, then Yale, you had the University of uh, Pennsylvania, Dartmouth. When we say, for example, all of those uh, institutions were founded upon or religious principles in both cases, but that all of them were founded by white men, mm. 
That is an absolute fact. And so when we say these are our arbiters of what is considered education Mm -hmm. or academic or intellect, that is factual. And so even, you know, one of the lectures that I do is I, I reveal a pretty thorough landscape of philosophies, academic philosophies that begin to emerge out of these institutions. And so I talk about people like Dr. Josiah Knott, who theorized that Black people had different skull formations Mm. than white people, and therefore we were less intelligent because of that, and that we required masters. People like um, Samuel Cartwright, who theorized that Black people suffered from diesthesia Ethiopica, um, which meant that we were lazy and that we needed to be empowered by whippings and beatings from slave masters. Mm. These are the people who were considered academics. There's no debate about that. Right. This is part of the factual history of American institutions. I also want you to speak to this. I see, in my mind, what is something of a dog whistle along political lines, even still today, when you hear conservatives, Republicans in general, talk about Democrat-run this, Democrat-run cities and Democrat-run states that are majority-minority, and the, the, the silent statement that Black people just can't govern as good as we do. We see this now with Fonnie Willis uh, and the indictments against Donald Trump, uh, how he spoke about, uh, I mean, I'm right here in Atlanta. He spoke about the district I live in, uh, John Lewis District, being deplorable. And this, uh, There's a little bit of a, a reaffirmation of sorts of that historical context of racism still, isn't there? Absolutely. And I'll just give you a few quotes because what you reminded me of were perspectives that have been shared by previous presidents. So you have, for example, President Woodrow Wilson in 1950 saying, the white men of the South were aroused by the mere instinct of self-preservation and to rid themselves by fair means or foul of the intolerable burden of government sustained by the votes of ignorant Negroes Mm. and conducted in the interest of adventurers. Mm. What you just said, is the exact same propagandist rhetoric that was being used more just 100 years ago. And I think it is so emblematic of the hatred that people have toward Black humans in this country that there is an obsession with making these assertions that Black people are inferior and that we are less intelligent and that we are unable, we, we lack the capacity to govern, that we lack capacity to govern ourselves. You have President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor. He came right after him. He says um, earlier in his uh, political career, if Blacks were given the right to vote, that would place every splay-footed, bandy-shanked, humpback, thick-lipped, flat-nosed, oh woolly-headed, ebon-colored Negro in the country upon an equality with the poor white man. He says, as long as I am president, this will be a country for white men and a government for white men. So we understand the history of who white people are and who and how white people came to be. And so much of who white people are has been predicated upon their juxtaposing themselves against black people that and, and being anti-black, that they are superior in some way. And I think that it speaks to the psychopathology that needs to be investigated and really taken to task when we look at the evolution of this psychology that white people have not only adopted psychically, 
but base their entire existence upon. Dante, I'm out of time, but I'd love to have you back on some point in time. Can we do that? Can we just like a gentleman's agreement that we'll get you back on soon? For sure. That would be great. Absolutely love that. Dante King, author of the book, The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. Thanks so much for the time today. I appreciate that. Thank you. Legit out of time, so we're going to have to wrap it here. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or afterwards, wherever you podcast. Podcast.